Welcome to the Weekend Write-In, where writers read flash fiction. There's gotta be an exit here somewhere, I say to myself. But they are so desperate to see sunlight that they still occasionally have secret meetings to try to devise an escape plan. Someone's been here before me and left a record of their fate. Where am I? In the studio. What do you want? Flash fiction. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want flash fiction. You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? Sylvan Drake. Who is the prompt master? <laughs> you are John Nedwell. I am not a presenter. I am a free man. Orange alert. <laughs> That doesn't look good. Well, we haven't been able to get the parts. What did you expect for something made in the 1960s? Look, if you give up this silly obsession with escape, then we can just settle down and listen to some stories. But um, isn't escape the theme of this episode? It is, but that's no excuse for your behavior. Exit Condition by Thomas Nilsson I startled from my sleep shaking with the adrenaline rush of waking too suddenly. I look around with confusion as I swing my legs from the bed. For a moment, I don't know where I am, and no recollection of how I got here. We, more like. There are definitely more than just me here. I hear the rustling, an occasional shifting, faint noises behind the walls. There is nothing on the walls, not even the slightest hint as to the purpose of this place. The door has no handle, and the hinges are on the outside, and there is no window. The only source of light here is a cool fluorescent fixture in the ceiling behind an anonymous wobble cover, like the cot on the floor. It could have been made anywhere. The frame of the cot is steel tube, unnecessarily hefty for a simple bunk. Like everything else in here, it is white. The linen is white. My clothes are white. Except for slight differences in shade and creaminess, everything is white. A flickering gaze stops at the only thing standing out here. A pencil lying on the floor under the cut behind the heel of my bare foot. Slowly I get off the mattress, drawn towards the pencil so exotically mundane, and bend down to pick up the stub and notice a piece of paper on the floor beneath the bed, stuck under one of the cut legs, farthest back against the wall. I literally startle and look up as to see if anyone is watching me, guiltily. Then I drag at the bed. It makes a loud, shrill sound as I draw it. I halt and hold my breath, listening. It's as if I hope to undo the noise I made and have it pause in mid-air, return to me and not reveal my rummaging. There doesn't seem to be a reaction, though. Only intermittent shuffles from other imagined rooms mirroring mine. I grab the rim of the cot firmly to get a better purchase and lift it a bit as I drag it. 
It is heavy. I managed to heave it soundlessly away from the wall, leaving enough clearance for my hand to get behind it and get to the stuck sheet. It has writing on it. I can see the scribblings as I draw it out from behind the bed. My heart throbs. Someone's been here before me and left a record of their fate. Someone no longer here. One who escaped. My hands shake as I turn the sheet upright so I can read it. The handwriting oddly familiar. I startle from my sleep, shaking with the adrenaline rush of waking too suddenly. I look around with confusion as I swing my legs from the bed. For a moment, I don't know where I am. No recollection. Hi, I'm Tom Walborn. Today I will be reading an excerpt from an upcoming story I'm writing titled Back in the Game. Let me set the scene for you. The international criminal, Roland von Hemingway, a.k.a. No-Face, has been captured and is in the Savannah City Jail. He has just been told a hearing has been scheduled for the next day at the courthouse. He gives his lawyers sealed envelopes to be delivered to certain Confederates. Other characters in this chapter are Jack Swint, U.S. Marshal in charge of transporting the prisoner from the jail to the courthouse, and Ned Wells, a city detective. The chapter opens on the morning of the hearing. The U.S. Marshal's convoy of two cars and a van left the gated police compound at exactly 8.40 a.m. to transport No-Face to the courthouse. Patrolmen on the street held back traffic to allow the convoy to pass. Included in the queue was a brightly paneled laundry truck that had just made a pickup. As the convoy sped along Oglethorpe Street on the way to the courthouse, the laundry truck continued up Haversham around Columbia Square to an alleyway behind Broughton. The convoy turned right on Bull and right again on East York Street. They stopped at a metal door in the side of the courthouse building, about midway down the block. The laundry van stopped behind Angelo's diner, about four blocks from the courthouse. A man in coveralls extended a ramp and rolled the laundry bin from the back of the van into the back door of the diner. At the courthouse, a deputy marshal emerged from the lead car of the convoy, walked quickly to the metal door, and knocked. Before the door could open, two heavy sedans screeched to a halt at the front and back of the convoy, blocking them in. Marshal Jack Swint calmly watched them arrive from the front seat of the van. Driving the wrong way on a one-way street, that's against the law. Four men piled out of each car and, using the car bodies as shields, raised tommy guns and pointed them at the convoy. Give us no face and no one gets hurt, one of the men bellowed. Meanwhile, in the back room of Angelo's diner, the man in coveralls unzipped the laundry hamper and helped a shackled prisoner to stand. Two burly deputies appeared and lifted the prisoner up and out of the hamper. They escorted him through an inner door into a larger room that could have been a boardroom. In fact, it had been a boardroom when the diner, in a previous life, had been a bank. The furnishings were rather sparse now, not up to the standards of the bank board but perfectly adequate to hold a hearing. At the courthouse, the metal door had finally opened. It had only taken moments, but it must have seemed like a lifetime to the marshal who had been standing there, completely exposed to Tommy Gun-wielding felons. He quickly stepped inside and the door closed. In the van, Jack Swint picked up a microphone. And if we don't? The question boomed out of a speaker behind the front grill of the van, echoing between the walls of the courthouse and the buildings across the street. The leader raised his gun and fired a controlled burst over the tops of the convoy. 
He lowered the gun and was about to say something when Swint spoke again. Very impressive, but now it's our turn. A volley of gunfire targeted the tires of the two sedans. It seemed to come from all around them. As their getaway cars settled on their rims, the rubber shredded. The raiders ducked as low as they could, trying to shrink into the pavement. Let, Let me save, save you some time, time, Swint's voice boomed. We have snipers on the roofs on both sides of the street, in front of you and behind you. I'm going to make you the same offer. Throw down your guns, and no one gets hurt. Most of the assailants complied right away, without even consulting with each other. The leader rose and what was later described as a rebel yell charged down the street, his gun spewing lead directly at the van. A single rifle shot stopped his progress and silenced the machine gun. From inside the van, Swint surveyed the damage to the bulletproof glass of the windshield. <sighs> Diplomatic Services is going to be a little annoyed with me, he thought. He brought the microphone to his mouth. Round them up, gentlemen. More coffee, Roland? Ned Wells stood in front of the prisoner, a coffee pot in his hand. Liar, snarled Van Hemingway. I guess not. He picked up the empty coffee cup and set it on the sideboard. Too bad. Angelo makes really good coffee. Oh, wait. Is that gunfire I hear? Whatever could be happening. He looked at the two deputies who sat like large bookends on either side of the prison. Sounds like the marshals are involved in a little bit of pest control, one of them said. He laughed at his own joke. The judge will be here after the dust settles, Wells told the defendant. He'll bring your lawyer with him. That is, if you still have a lawyer, after this morning's little display of petulance. Stony-faced, the prisoner didn't say a word. The end. Escape in Time A story based on the TVO Kids flash game, The Big Escape 4 by J.H. Foliage. There's gotta be an exit here somewhere, I say to myself. Dr. Know-it-all's gigantic dictionary journal lies open on the sofa. My reflection sparkles in the door of the golden time machine as I pace back and forth in the musty room. Dr. Know-it-all seems to have experimented quite a bit before creating his time machine. Upon a shelf sits a jar full of flies, two smelly chemical flasks, and a grumpy stone statue. And seriously, what kind of mad person keeps four clocks that take asynchronously in their living room? But despite the insanity of it all, the setting and thrill of not being cooped up at home gives me a sense of adventure. And nostalgia. I am clearly going crazy. Unless I find the last missing word in the doctor's journal entry and decipher his message, I won't be able to travel back in time to my own home. Who knows what time it even is here? I stared at the clocks, pondering for ideas. The clocks look like they all came from the different time periods that I traveled through to obtain the missing words and fill the journal. There were a couple pendulum clocks from the 1800s and 1900s, a 21st century Roman numeral clock, and a metal contraption that must have been from the futuristic utopian world. Now that was a strange experience, but I'm certain I didn't miss any clues back there. Besides, the time travel sickness is getting to me. I'm never time traveling again, I muttered. Something tells me that the last clue is hiding in this wretched room. 
I swept this place from up to down already, but I squint at the journal. Blank, adjective, blank, noun. Are our prisons. They leech intelligence from the brains of our children and threaten humankind. But with my brain and memory enhancing elixir, I shall change history so we may return to seeing the world through our own eyes. <sighs> if only I could decipher these last words on my own. I'm sure that's what the time machine means when it asks for a password. Prison. What can be our prison? Uh, stupidity, mm, lack of common sense. No, that too many words. Dr. Know-it-all is obsessed with making books and written texts obsolete. But there's no way I can guess the specific book he's referencing, I groan. He's just a crazy fugitive scientist with a potion that doesn't even work. <sighs> what a creative name for an elixir. He can be pretty literal sometimes. Then an idea hit. A vague memory swims to the surface like deja vu. Of course! I yank open the time machine and punch in the password. Video games. The lights blink on and off. My stomach swims. I sink to the ground and curl up in a fetal position, enduring the nausea as the time machine trembles and whines, plunging into darkness. When I wake, I'm sitting in front of my computer screen. My browser is open on the TVO Kids website with educational games. I scroll through, eagerly looking for them, but my favorite flash games from childhood are no longer there. I sigh and look at the calendar. Farewell, 2020. I took you for granted. Divine Justice Written and read by Christine Larson Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Friendly enough words, but not when spoken through tightened lips, eyes bleak and glittering almost evilly. In different circumstances, Cadet would have felt like an entomologist's prized specimen, trapped with no hope of escape. But not this day. When the siren made its first heart-stopping wheel-wheel squeal, and Canote looked into his mirror to see the flashing lights directly behind him. The combination caused his heart to thump painfully. A quick glance at his speedometer showed he'd been doing no more than a kilometre over the speed limit. He relaxed. Phew! Speedometer accurate? Damn well should be too, seeing my little beauty is only three months old. As both cars pulled into the curb, he recognised the officer stepping out of the car, adjusting all the paraphernalia he wore around his torso. Well, well, if it isn't Gil, looking very spiffy. Heard you'd moved up in the world from a truckie. What were you, the tomato sauce delivery fellow? Watch your mouth, buster. I'm wearing a uniform now. The one signifying I have the law on my side. Canote rolled his eyes. And the law, according to the Gospel of Gilbert, has found me guilty of what, precisely? Gil officiously licked his index finger and flicked over a couple of pages of his official expiation notepad. 
feeding, smartass. Uh, excuse me, sir. In a built-up area like this, school crossing up the road a bit, traffic lights not so far back, did you have any reason to be in a hurry, sir? And he smirked unpleasantly. Like in a hurry to get to the blushing bride-to-be, maybe? Before she realises what a wanker you really are? With a hard shake, he drew himself back into official mode. Standing tall as he could, Gil tilted his head to look down his nose at his victim. In a vicious tone, he said, We'll see what the judge thinks in court, sir. Speeding offences are not viewed kindly after the latest rash of accidents in this area. With an obvious drawing in of cheeks, Connect continued, We will see what the judge thinks indeed when he hears of our prior connection and my defence showing your trumped-up, totally biased charge. We both know all too well. The lady in question already discovered who the wanker was when she threw your ring right back in your face. You had your chance, Buster, and you blew it. Connect snorted his disgust. Go off and play up with a floozy because I kissed her at the office Christmas party. What a loser. Seriously deflated now, but with his last ounce of bravado, the wannabe gangbuster spluttered. Well, let this be a lesson to you, chum. Next time you won't be this lucky, on the road or in love. Next time, guilty me? With a name like yours, I doubt it. I doubt it very much. The Messiah by Paul Wesley One breath was all it took to guarantee a certain death. According to the scientists, the virus that has saturated our air will take at least five years to dissipate. It's been over a year now. It came on so suddenly that I would be surprised if more than a thousand of us still exist around the world. No doubt comprised of the extremely wealthy, the military and politicians. And I doubt any of them have resources or supplies to outlast the virus. I would like to tell you that I had the most amazing foresight in building my secret underground complex under my country estate, but that would be a lie. It cost me over a hundred million dollars. As it turns out, money well spent. It is fully solar powered, I have enough supplies for at least 10 years, so I expect to come through this unscathed. The construction crew and their friends and families died long ago, so I don't concern myself much with survivors finding it and trying to gain entry, and my security system will take care of any who do. My wife and son died early on. So now it's just me and my four teenage girls, which in a way I'm grateful for as it certainly makes life less complicated. Although, truth be told, they are also ungrateful. They have a large living room, a kitchen, a bathroom and each their own bedroom. They keep the fridge and pantry stocked. They have videos to watch, games to play. And let's face it, without me they would all be dead. It's funny, I always tell them it's pointless to try to reach the surface, but this is their life now. 
but they are so desperate to see sunlight that they still occasionally have secret meetings to try to devise an escape plan. I am watching and listening to them the whole time from my control room, so it's not likely they'll ever find a way without me knowing about it. I've made it very clear to them if any of them try, none of them will be fed for three days. I have already had to follow through with this punishment twice, so the peer pressure prevents them from trying again for a while. The fate of the human race is up to me now. I believe it is my destiny to repopulate the world. I haven't told my girls what is happening about. Maybe I should so that they would thank me rather than hate me. But I don't want them to become even more stressed. And anyway, I doubt any of them would believe me. I had originally planned on keeping each girl for a few years before I disposed of her, replenishing my supply along the way. So much for that plan. Does that make me a monster? Maybe. But what about now? Now I'm the Messiah. Even I didn't see that one coming. What Ho, Lockdown, by John Nedwell. Things had been grim at the Towers for the last six months. What with this coronavirus thing and whatnot. I mean, never mind the thousands of invalids and the bally shortages, eh? Even the season had been killed off by this dash disease. Of course, being a loyal and patriotic chap, I had done my duty and obeyed the government. No more nights at the club or trips to the West End. And definitely no knocking policemen's helmets off, what? And when the order had come for the old folks to start shielding, I gave nary a peep of protest. Indeed, me and my man Hives hold up for the duration. After all, Hives had been with me for simply ages, and I couldn't do without him. Who would have laid my clothes out in the morning? What? Still, I'm not going to pretend life at the Towers was all tickety-boo. You see, the thing with Hives is the man can be so insufferable at times. That's not to say he isn't right, though. But sometimes the man has an air of suffocating smugness. But... What with the limits set in our freedoms, the usual remedy wasn't possible. I never lost my temper. It's not the done thing to yell at one's valet, but I did end up spending long hours in my study, deep in the most horrible of funks. Fortunately, Hives had set me up on this Zoom thingy, and I was able to talk with some of the other club members. It wasn't the same, but we were dashed if we were going to let this thing get us down. Still, we were most cheered when young Wingo brought us the good news. I say, chaps, he began. Haven't you heard? The PM said this virus thing has been conquered, and now we have to go out and spend money like Billio to keep the country going. Wacko, I declared. So, all down to the clubs for drinks and dinner then? Rather, indeed. Pip-pip, old man. I gave Hives the good ones, but all he said was, Are you sure, sir? Still, I wasn't going to let his pessimism ruin our release from bondage. Even Moses let the Israelites have a little party. What? So, come the day, come the hour. I made ready for my merry sojourn. Hives was waiting for me. Sir, he coughed discreetly. What is it? I asked, just slightly peeved. You'll need a mask, sir. He handed me an elasticated cloth. Remember not to meet with more than six individuals. And please... The man droned on and on. I let him finish his instructions and loading me with enough equipment to outfit an expedition to Timbuktu before asking... Is this all necessary, Hives? Yes, sir. According to the article in the Times, it is. I sighed in defeat. Seems like a lot of trouble for just drinkies, Hives. 
Perhaps I shall stay at home. Very good, sir. Freedom by Sylvan Drake A life without freedom is not a real life at all, someone said. So I gave those two broads the slip, and free I was. I had been in their custody almost three years, but it had felt like an eternity to me. In their mind, I had no rights. Like twisted parole officers, they thought they could make me do anything they wanted. They told me when to eat, when to sleep, and when to take a goddamn crap. I could refuse the cold oatmeal or the inedible vegetables they fed me under the guise of state-recommended nutrition, but I'd see it again the next meal. I could scream and rattle the bars in the middle of the night, but the consequences were ugly. They seemed hell-bent on exhausting themselves to control me. I needed out. After about a year, I attempted my first escape, but it was short-lived. Those broads were no fools. They anticipated my every move and back I was in captivity. After that, they were constantly vigilant. I think they even got nervous I would do something rash, like hurl myself into oncoming traffic, so they never let me out of their sight if any dangers were around. So I did what I had to do. I secretly worked out to get smarter, stronger, and faster. I don't think I was born a bad person, but this kind of situation seems to be the norm for my type. I guess we are destined to push the boundaries and break the rules. Something about our DNA or how we are wired, I guess. It stinks though. I never get what I want. Today I thought I might have to punch one of them to escape, but I hate to do that. Not because punching a dame weighs heavily on my minuscule conscience or because it isn't a nice release of all that pent up rage and anger that seems to bubble so quickly to the surface, but because I'm wise enough in my old age to know it has serious consequences. But today, the opportunity presented itself and I quietly disappeared. Bliss. I found myself in a busy shopping mall with people, anonymous strangers swirling around me. My heart raced with excitement and I knew what I wanted first, the first thing any man wants when he gets out of prison. I eyed a Milky Way bar on a low shelf at a newsstand. I didn't have any money but I've been known to take advantage of the five-finger discount. The lady at the counter gave me the stink eye, though, so I knew I'd better keep moving. Besides, I already knew what my next move would be. A beeline for an open glass elevator. Those magical feats of engineering. I got in alone and stood on tiptoe to push the lowest button. That's when a large hand clamped down around my wrist. Do you know how worried sick you just made your mama running off like that, said my grandmother. You are in big trouble, young man. She dragged me away, kicking and screaming. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, go to our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. The Weekend Write-In Podcast is co-hosted, produced, and edited by John Nedwell and Sovan Drake. In this episode, royalty-free music is from festlionstudios.com, sound effects from BBC Sound Effects Archive and freesound.org. Well, now that that's over, we can get all of this stuff out of the studio. I mean, who needs all this junk? Egg-shaped chairs, strange telephones, old weather balloons. It's just weird for weird's sake.
bit dated, but can I at least keep the blazer? I quite think it suits me. And the umbrella might come in handy. You know what the weather in Washington State can be like. Ooh, and the car. We keep the car. It's definitely cool. Want to go for a drive? I call shotgun. Shotgun. 